So I'm ready to give my talk. <laughs> I just spent uh, five minutes listening to Death Metal with Noah and Josh. <laughs> One minute for each of the five spiritual faculties. <laughs> It's more funny that you think it's a joke. <laughs> I'd like to read a poem. It's called System Preferences. System Preferences. Everyone's talking about death. The Buddha started it. Zen Roshis carrying crooked sticks in Gasho are talking about it. White, bald, Jewish Theravada teachers are talking about it. <laughs> I suppose the Tibetans are too with their book of living and dying. The word on the street in the temples, in the old books and recent translations is, we're all going to die. What I want to know is, when it happens, does my email get forwarded directly? Or do I need to adjust the settings for that before I go? So that's just for fun. <laughs> you okay? A couple weeks ago, about three weeks ago, uh, I had an opportunity to go on uh, vacation, my first vacation in, I think, seven years, and I went to Portugal and wanted to read a novel, which is something that I love to do and have loved for a very, very long time. When I was an undergrad, I went to school for uh, English literature and writing, and, you know, I'll read a novel like once every five years. No, I don't, I don't make the time for it. And so I took with me a piece of fiction that uh, was about Portugal, uh, largely about Lisbon, called A Night Train to Lisbon. And it struck me uh, as I was reading it that there was a lot of uh, Buddhist concept in Buddhist imagery, or rather perhaps maybe because I'm prone to notice Dharma in different areas that, you know, that's how I, uh, I translated it. So I'm going to share a little bit about my experience with that book, primarily about the experiences of the main character in that book, and uh, talk about faith and trust, and maybe in some indirect way about risk-taking. The book is about a middle-aged man named Gregorius, and he is a teacher of classical languages. And most notably, he lives a life marked by extreme conditioning. 
extreme repetition of behavior day out, day in, particularly on the five days that he goes to campus and, uh, and teaches. He takes the same path to school every day. He arrives exactly, the narrative says, at the same time. He always enters the same door, walks through the gymnasium, then goes to his class. The book doesn't say this, but if you're reading the, the story, you get the sense that he probably goes home the same way, you know, out the same door, across the gymnasium, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Gets home, has the same can of, you know, Chef Boyardee macaroni or something, and watches the same television programs and puts the same pajamas on and goes to bed at the same time. This is, this is Gregorius. From the book, at quarter to eight, he came from Bundenstrasse and stepped onto the Kirchenfeldbruck, leading from the heart of the city to the gymnasium. He did that every workday of the school term, always at quarter to eight. Once, when the bridge was blocked, he made a mistake in beginning Greek class afterward. That had never happened before, nor did it ever happen again. For days, the whole school talked of nothing but this mistake. The longer the discussion lasted, the more it was thought to be a mistake in hearing. In other words, uh, it was decided amongst the students and faculty that he didn't actually make a mistake, it's just the story got translated wrong. <laughs> At last, this conviction won out even among the students who had been there. <laughs> It was simply inconceivable that Mundus, his nickname, as everyone called him, could make a mistake in Greek, Latin, or Hebrew. So what I'm pointing toward is the character, uh, the personality of a man whose whole life, again, uh, was governed by such routine that that was how people identified him. And a simple mistake in starting class wrong uh, was talked about. This was a big deal. Mundus or Gregorius is also considered a master and revered teacher. Mundus, the most reliable and predictable person in this building and probably in the whole history of the school, working here for more than 30 years, impeccable in his profession, a pillar of the institution. A little boring, perhaps, but respected and even feared in the university for his astounding knowledge of ancient languages, mocked lovingly by his students who put him to the test every year by calling him in the middle of the night and asking about the conjecture for a remote passage in an ancient text, only to get every time off the top of his head information that was both dry and exhaustive. <laughs> including a critical commentary with other possible meanings, all of it presented perfectly and calmly without a sukhan of anger at the disturbance. Mundus, a man with an impossibly old-fashioned, even archaic first name you simply had to abbreviate and couldn't abbreviate any other way, an abbreviation that revealed the character of this man as no word could have. For what he carried around in him as a philologist was in fact no less than a whole world or rather several whole worlds. 
since along with those Latin and Greek passages, his head also held the Hebrew that amazed several Old Testament scholars. If you want to see a true scholar, the rector would say when he introduced him to a new class, here he is. As the story goes on, what we learn about Gregorius is that his talent, uh, his skill, his timeliness, what really for students was a charming quirkiness, was directly related to his incessant control of his environment, both inwardly and outwardly. There is nothing fluid or free about him or his personality. Gregorius's uh, way in the world is governed by fear and a distinct lack of trust, both of himself and others. His approach to everything is strict and formulaic, and his personality in our language as practitioners in the Buddhist tradition is really an archetype of habitual conditioning. He's almost a cartoon character of some of the themes that we talk about. It appears that nothing in Gregorius's life will change, couldn't possibly change. It's a paraphrase from another uh, place in the book, or rather just to draw different images together. The author says to some extent at one point that Gregarius used his precision and his learning and his habitual approach to getting things right to uh, smolder the magic of life. To smolder the magic of life. The, uh, the symbolism of his vocation as a philologist, a scholar of words, is that he understood and related to life on the surface. He was bound by concepts, and his life contracted around a limited and shallow existence and ideas. Gregorius is basically fearful. He's consumed by inaction. We can't, to any great extent, say that all he accomplishes is a great action because he, he does the same thing over and over again. Right? He figured it out once, he was very bright, and he just keeps doing it. And it appears that there is no faith acting through him at all. There, it appears that there is no faith acting through him at all. Gregorius self-describes himself as fraudulent. He's a fraud. <clears throat> right at the start of the book, two things happen which create the foundation of the whole plot. One is he meets, uh, by chance, he meets a woman. He's on his way to school, and it's pouring rain, and he looks up, and there's a woman standing in the rain reading a note, and she's near a bridge. And it's unclear exactly what he's processing, but he, there's a sense that he thinks she's going to jump, and he moves toward the woman. He has a brief and very strange encounter with the woman. And as a result of this encounter, he invites the woman to go to school with him, which, you know, in the short description I've shared of who this person is, is completely ludicrous. And so he shows up in class soaking wet with a woman who's soaking wet 
And he invites the woman to sit in the back of the class. And the woman simply observes class. He teaches in the way that he normally does, but he reports being distracted. And then at the end of the class, this enigmatic woman gets up, looks him deeply, right in the eyes, and says goodbye and leaves. And that's it. Something is stirred in this man to such an extent that we could say it wakes up something in him, if not something small, and he begins to question himself. The connection wasn't romantic and it wasn't sexual. It was just so radically outside the norm that just doing it had disrupted something within himself. Does that make sense? Right? He knows the woman is from Portugal, and he becomes, I don't want to use the word obsessed, but in, in what turns out to be a very healthy way, he becomes attracted to all things Portuguese, and being of the um, persuasion to like books and to learn through literature, he seeks, uh, he seeks out a particular author named uh, Prado, and Prado is sort of a, a scholar mystic, and he starts, to read, uh, he starts to read a book by this Portuguese author. It's said that uh, Prado's principles in magnetism uh, provide another level of compulsion for Gregorius to seek a different way of life. Prado writes of intimacy with feelings, necessary personal and social upheaval, in transformation. And his words embody a kind of spiritual wisdom that transcends religion or tradition. I want to read a, a short passage from the book that Pradu wrote and Gregorius is reading. And I'd like to invite that you hear this in light of the work that we're doing here together. The passage is titled, Silent Nobility. Silent Nobility. It is a mistake to believe that the crucial moments of a life, when its habitual direction changes forever, must be loud and shrill dramatics, washed away by fierce internal surges. This is a kitschy fairy tale started by boozing journalists. Flashbulb-seeking filmmakers and authors whose minds look like tabloids. In truth, the dramatics of a life-determining experience are often unbelievably soft. It has so little akin to the bang, the flash, or the volcanic eruption that at the moment it is made, the experience is not even noticed. When it deploys its revolutionary effect and plunges a life into a brand new light, giving it a brand new melody, it does that silently, and in this wonderful silence resides its special nobility. Gregorius abruptly decides to leave his job. <laughs> he leaves two Latin books on his desk, 
buys a train ticket to Lisbon and doesn't tell anyone that he's leaving. The symbolism of leaving the books on the desk is to that of his fear. He thinks he's coming back, and it's a, it's a tether. He, he's, he's leaving, but he's, but he's staying at the same time. So these two events, the woman and the book, lead him ultimately to feel the weight of a kind of absence in his life. He is one absent He is one without a purposeful existence despite his love of languages and a great job. He has few deep connections with others. He is emotionally hollow. His capacity for spontaneity and vitality are nearly non-existent. He starts to question how much he actually knows. Remember, everyone thinks he's brilliant. He comes to question his own notion of knowing altogether. And some people, uh, you know, in various traditions would say that, like, this is the start of the spiritual path. That, uh, the wondering, do I even know anything that really is of substance or value? Is really, like, in the end, will it, will it help? Will it matter? And so he's, he's, he's on his way. He's going to uh, take the train to Portugal. An hour to Paris, Gregorius sat down in the dining car and looked out into a bright early spring day. Spring, uh, symbol for change and transformation. And there, all of a sudden, he realized that he was in fact making this trip. That it wasn't only a possibility. Something he had thought up on a sleepless night and that could have been, but something that really and truly was taking place. And the more space he gave this feeling, the more it seemed to him that the relation of possibility and reality were beginning to change. And the more space he gave this feeling the more it seemed to him that the relation of possibility and reality were beginning to change. So he arrives in Lisbon, and as his first days unfold in Lisbon, he has a, he's plagued by a reoccurring thought pattern, which is simply, I must go home. This is crazy. I don't know why I'm here. Sounds like interviewing with a lot of you. (laughs) But he doesn't go home, which is also like interviewing with a lot of you. And he stays. And what happens, and the author is very clever. He, the, author, the author says that every day he had a thought of buying, he, thought, he had a thought of going home and Uh, He he has difficulty buying the plane tickets, like the agent he needs to buy the plane ticket is not there. He goes too late to where you would get the plane ticket and all that stuff. And then he stops trying to buy the plane ticket, you know, a couple days go by, but he's still thinking, I'm going to go home. I should go home. This is crazy. This is stupid. You know, I'm so far away from home. I don't know what to do here. I don't know. He doesn't speak the language. Uh, I don't speak the language. (laughs) He's wondering about this woman, like why am I, you know, he's kind of following this woman, but actually what he's doing is he's, He's looking for, it turns out that he's looking for Pradu, this 
spiritual teacher, ultimately. And these thoughts, this habitual consideration of going home slows down, or there are more days between that exact thought. And then eventually, the thought goes away altogether. It it never has that thought, I should go home. And instead, he he just settles in and he starts taking all sorts of risks. He's in search of this guy, Pradu, and he, you know, he goes to the cemetery to see, you know, he learns at one point that Pradu is dead, and so he goes to the cemetery to try to figure out if anybody's alive, and then he starts knocking on people's doors, and the whole story is about him searching for Pradu by way of trying to meet people who are connected to Pradu. He takes a lot of risks, and he meets a lot of people, and he starts to develop relationships with these people, and he starts to like them and care for them, and they care for him. In a sense, Lisbon almost becomes a kind of second home. So in a sense, he finds within himself what he saw in Prado's teachings through these relationships, through a kind of connection, and through the risks he's taken in being in a place that uh, was unconceivable, ultimately. Lisbon, as a place, is arbitrary, though simply representing uh, uncertainty, fear, not knowing, etc. A place one wants to go, but doesn't know how. Uh, And for Gregorius specifically, which represents a new, fuller life, an interior life. And the night train, of course, the title of the book, Night Train to Lisbon, uh, the night represents a darkness and ability to see uh, not knowing. He, He took a night train to Lisbon, not a day train. Discussing... So this is, a, this is a big leap. Discussing the five spiritual faculties, the Buddhist teachings on the five spiritual faculties, uh, Burmese teacher Sayada U. Pandita uh, said to a student, asked a senior student, uh, who is you know probably a teacher to many of us, uh, in a discussion about the spiritual life, asked this teacher or student, uh, "What is equanimity?" And, and he did this as the teacher was walking, uh, had, had come through the threshold of the door, was walking towards Sayadaw, and he posed the question right away, and it caught the teacher off guard, because normally uh, she would do three prostrations and then sit down and they would have a discussion. So she, she heard the question, she did three prostrations, she answered the question, and she gave a very accurate, very clear, succinct answer, and uh, in his usual way, he, he didn't disagree, and he didn't agree, uh, and went quiet, and then simply answered the question to his liking, which must be something they teach in Sayadaw school or something, because <laughs> it seems to be how they do it. Um, I think they ask questions sometimes just so that they can, they can impart the answer they want. Sayada Upandita said, equanimity is like a chariot being pulled by five horses. He's using language that the Buddha would have used. In the lead is mindful awareness, and behind him the first pair of horses are faith and wisdom. 
And the second pair of horses are concentration and energy. When faith and wisdom are in balance, and concentration and energy are in balance, the lead horse, mindful awareness, has very little work to do. So just a um, sort of a comment or note on the correlations I'm making. Uh, Equanimity is not explicitly part of this little grouping of uh, teachings, the five spiritual faculties, though we could probably say that equanimity, like other wholesome or healthy or skillful or appropriately desired uh, faculties, um, equanimity is, is probably drawn toward us, if you will, when the five spiritual faculties are are uh, active, alive, and balanced. Uh, likewise, I, I don't intend to make an explicit correlation between the five spiritual faculties and Gregorius's story, but rather uh, to draw upon the five spiritual faculties uh, to illustrate a way of thinking about faith as a resource for deepening our practice, but also uh, for deepening our engagement with daily life when we're not in retreat. So I'll go over the five uh, spiritual faculties briefly. And the first is faith. So this is where I got, this is the point where I got a little nervous uh, working on this material. I I find that faith uh, uh, for me, and maybe probably for a lot of people, for me uh, it's challenging uh, to talk about. uh, And that doing so comes with some risk. Partly, as a teacher within a tradition that by some definitions is a religion. Uh, And second, I'm assuming the risk of talking about something uh, that I haven't mastered, uh, that is not static, and probably is not agreed upon by everybody. Right? Yet it's true that while I can feel myself emotionally or energetically or just based on some kind of, kind of fear or protection that I shy away from the word, the, the truth is I have a real strong passion for the experience of faith in my own life. And I'm comfortable saying that I have a genuine interest in supporting others in defining and actualizing or feeling a sense of faith in their own life. You know, however it is that, that you or they define that. Edward Collins, who uh, is someone you'll find on Access to Insight a lot, uh, he says, faith is called the seed. And this faith is much more than the mere acceptance of beliefs. So some thoughts on faith that are mine and not necessarily from, from the, uh, the Pali canon or the commentaries, okay? Viewing faith as subscribing to a belief or accepting something that is true without testing it is not a useful kind of faith. And it's not consistent with the spirit of investigation also. One of the things that I find that I need to do is I need to replace acceptance or adherence of belief with openness. So uh, I'm open to a belief. I'm open to an idea. 
I'm open to the Four Noble Truths. I'm open to cessation of suffering. I'm open to being a more compassionate... I'm open to the teachings and the practices leading me to being a more compassionate person. But I don't know if any of that is true until I explore, experiment, do the practice myself, maybe read and study too, but definitely do the practices. Uh, Noah mentioned briefly that there was a time for him when there was a, he was, taught, he was using the word blind, the, the idea of blind faith. And he was not advocating for it. And he said that for him there was a lot of desperation, right? There was a lot of desperation. But in his story, there was some openness to something. I mean, he might not even have known that it would be uh, Dharma, Buddhism, meditation that would work. But there was just, there was enough openness. In my own story, in my own experience, in my early 20s, it was a particular blend of depression and anger and um, a kind of real confusion at the, what I perceived as this gross and rampant uh, greed in uh, materialism and advantage taking and selfishness that I didn't see in pockets or places of certain people, but that was the world. That's the world that I had inherited. And it, I, it, it fucked me up enough that I, you know, there were some other factors. There was a relationship that ended. I was very young. And I spent uh, years living in the attic of my parents' house, uh, depressed and, and, and reading Dharma books. And ultimately what happened was I found a theory, I found a set of ideas that matched a gut intuition that while what I saw, I believe, was actually true, that it could also change. I really, I just had this sense that while, yes, what I was seeing was somewhat accurate, even though I had a very absolute view, I had a very, very strong gut sense that it didn't have to be that way. Right, so that's the openness. That's the faith. Uh, no teachings attached to it. No, just a sense of like, it just can't be like that. Because I couldn't live in that, I couldn't live in that, I couldn't live within myself. I couldn't even get out of the attic, Right? Edward Cohn's again, generally speaking, faith is regarded as only a preliminary step, as a merely provisional state in due course, direct spiritual awareness, will know that which faith took on trust and longed to know. Much time must usually elapse before the virtue of wisdom has become strong enough to support a vigorous insight into the true nature of reality. So with regard to faith and courage, and I'll just say that courage is not, that's not a word that we find in the, in the five spiritual faculties. If faith is not a blind admittance to views, if faith is not to become a servant to views, then faith can't be the territory of the intellect. And the opposite of the intellect is the heart. 
Coincidentally, the Pali word sada, sometimes rendered as faith, is etymologically akin to the Latin core, C-O-R, the heart. Again from Kahn's. It is faith, as Professor Rod Krishan incisively puts it, the striving after self-realization by concentrating the powers of the mind on a given idea. Volitionally, faith implies a resolute and courageous act of will. It combines the steadfast resolution that one will do a thing with the self-confidence that one can do it. Suppose that people living on the side of a river are doomed to perish from many enemies, disease, and famine. Read hindrances. Safety lies on the other shore. The person of faith is then likened to the person who swims across the river, braving its dangers, saving himself, and inspiring others by his example. So this crossing the river, and this is a a common image in uh, the Buddhist tales, uh, this requires energy, which is the next spiritual factor. Energy or sometimes uh, vigor. Uh, virya in Pali, virya. So the way, I, the way I explain this is that virya is an attitude coupled with action. It's equal parts, attitude and action. Okay, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to find language to articulate a particular quality. It's a combination of attitude and action. Little, cons again, little need to be said about the need for being energetic if one wants to achieve something. Without vigor, without strenuous effort, without perseverance, so this is last night's talk, in part, one obviously cannot make much progress. Not everybody took... um, yoga in the last couple of days, but yesterday's class and today's class were completely different, correct? (laughs) Right? Intentionally, yesterday's class was intended to cultivate a felt sense of calm and tranquility coupled with a mind that's able to stay aware. Right? Just because that was the intention not, doesn't mean that that's what everybody experienced. But can, because some of you fell asleep. <laughs> but can, but, but can, can, you, can, can you get a sense energetically, like the calm, the quiet, the, there was not a lot of movement. If you fell asleep, you had to be very relaxed, right? <laughs> So calm, tranquility. Today's class intended to offer an example of virya, of vigor and effort. Does that make sense for those of you who were there? It really did require something very, very different, didn't it? Right? Right. Okay. The philosopher sage whose name was Pradu, who was one of the uh, key draws for Gregorius to go to uh, 
Lisbon and change his whole life uh, is described uh, in his approach to his own, uh, his own learning. All the things he read when he crossed the threshold of the Lysu school at the age of 10 in his small tailor-made frock, explanation point. Many of us caught ourselves secretly calculating whether we could keep up with him. And then, after class, he sat in the library with his phenomenal memory in his dark eyes, soaking up all the thick books, line after line, page after page, with their incredibly, with their incredibly concentrated, rapt look, whose steadfastness couldn't have been shaken by even the loudest bang. When Amadou finishes reading a book, said another teacher, it has no more letters. (laughs) He devours not only the meaning, but the printer's ink. That's how it was. The texts seemed to disappear altogether in him, and what stood on the shelf afterward were only empty husks. The passage is intended to convey nothing about reading or book learning. It's the whole talk is the opposite, but rather intended to demonstrate a kind of conviction, a dedication, virya, energy, effort. Maybe your yoga mats and blankets and zafus will just be a pile of sawdust at the end of this. Mindfulness, another factor in the arrangement of teachings we call the five spiritual faculties. From the Vesudhimaga, mindfulness should be strong everywhere, for it protects the mind from excitedness into which it might fall since faith, vigor, and wisdom may excite us, and from indolence into which it might fall since concentration favors indolence. Therefore, mindfulness is desirable everywhere. Like a seasoning of salt in all sauces, like the prime minister in all state functions, hence it is said, the Buddha has declared mindfulness to be useful everywhere, for the mind finds refuge in mindfulness, and mindfulness is its protector. Without mindfulness, there can be no exertion or restraint of the mind. So probably everybody that's taught so far has, in their own language, said something about the continuity of mindfulness, right? Continuity of mindfulness. I went through the Satipatthana Sutta once about six months ago and counted all the references to continuity and there are, I forget, 21 or 24 uh, strong suggestions, uh, recommendations for continuity over 20 times. So... Mindfulness, the, the best way I can describe this is, is mindfulness is like the person in the, uh, what are they, the, at the airport, uh, the control tower? Mindfulness is like the person in the control tower that is watching 
the, watching the other uh, spiritual faculties, in watching the hindrances, in watching everything, really. And, you know, um, making sure that nothing crashes into each other and making sure that when the time is right, certain faculties get more throttle and other faculties get more break, etc. And if the uh, person at the top of the control tower looks away for any length of time, uh, people's lives are in jeopardy. You know, a plane is going to crash, right? Concentration is going to waver. Faith is going to run amok in all sorts of ideas that may or may not be true, etc. Energy might just uh, become too much, you know, and there's, uh, there's restlessness and an inability to settle and quiet the mind. Mindfulness guards against the enemies of spiritual quietude. Mindfulness guards against the enemies of spiritual quietude. And I don't think there'll be anything new here, but rather kind of a review of the talks that have already been given. What are the principal enemies of spiritual quietude? One, the senses. Why? Because unrestrained, they lead to the hindrances. Two, the movements of the body. I'll I'll explain that in a minute. Three, passion, want, desire, unregulated. And four, discursive thinking. It's not that thinking is bad, right? We talked about this last night too. It's that we're instructed to notice the rising and passing rather than getting caught up in the content as a way of fixing something, figuring something out, or feeling better. So we're trying to avoid those tendencies. These four have the power to be enemies when they are not subjected to any discipline, when, they are, when mindfulness is not brought to them. Two, when the ego identifies itself with what takes place on the surface of the mind, participates in them, and when the illusion rises that these activities are my doings, my concerns in the sphere in which I live. In order to conquer these enemies of spiritual quietude, we must, one, withdraw the senses from their objects as the tortoise withdraws its limbs. Two, we must keep watch on our muscular movements. This refers to the notion that restlessness in the body correlates with restlessness in the mind. And also the uh, continuity instructions that we should keep close eye on the body in walking meditation, uh, eating, walking to the bathroom, walking to the other building to sleep at night, etc. Continuity of mindfulness in order to maintain stability of the mind throughout all activities. Number three, cease wanting. This is tanha or craving. So eventually, eventually, craving wears out. Because, you know, I mean, it's like if we sit long enough, it's just craving for this, craving for, okay, I'm done with that craving. Oh, now I'm craving for this. (laughs) 
now I'm craving for this, you know. Craving is replaced by another craving, isn't it? Right? I mean, you see this. I'm imagining that you're seeing it. And you're reporting that you're seeing this in your interview. And everybody is aspiring to, you know, fill in the blank. And yet, within that, there's the craving for it to happen faster. It should be different. Right? Often what I find myself doing in interview is, is really just trying to point out that the insight is already there. Right? You're, you're seeing so much. You're seeing so much. And then four, to cut off uh, discursive thinking. Concentration, uh, also on the list of uh, spiritual faculties. I'm not really going to say anything about this. We've talked a lot about it. You know, basically the stability, the creation of stability within an otherwise turbulent mind. Right? And the final uh, spiritual faculty is wisdom itself. There are three types of wisdom, or panya. The first is suttamaya panya. We can understand this as information. It's information. Uh, We get this, you're getting this kind of information now, you got it last night at 7 o'clock, you got it the night before at 7 o'clock, and you get it every morning at 9 o'clock, and every morning at 4 o'clock, and every afternoon at 4 o'clock. You get this when you read Dharma, you get this when you download Dharma talks, you get this kind of uh, knowledge or wisdom. It's valuable, right? Moderately. It's moderately, val- it's moderately valuable. Okay? So I call this information. This is the first kind of wisdom. The second kind of wisdom we can call intelligence. This is what you get from your own reflection. This still has a quality of analysis to it, right? Uh, You hear the teachings, uh, you read some books, you talk with friends, and you then head out and you journal, you reflect. Some of you are doing it now. Some of you are, are journaling. You're you're getting, the, um, you're getting the information on the first level. You're putting in, even the way you're putting it in your journal is probably the start of reflection. And then if you go back and look at it and think about it and contemplate it later, you're now entering into this uh, second level of, really of discernment, of the development of knowledge or wisdom. And then the third level, uh, genuine insight or wisdom is gained through direct experience. This is what we see not necessarily on the cushion, but it's correlated explicitly with formal practice, with the kind of striving uh, that we're advocating for. You know, maybe you actually get up off the cushion and you hit the carpet and the mind just blows open. Yeah, that is in fact what I do every time somebody looks at me in their face has the same manifestation as when my mother looked at me. And I crumble, you know, and I feel small. And actually, it's a totally different person. It's not even my mother. And I do that every time somebody looks at me like that. You just, that's insight. You just saw it, right? You saw that you were filtering 
the world in your experience with particular kinds of people in particular situations through a perception that was based on past experience, that, was not, that did not have any intrinsic relevancy at all. It was just stored as a thought pattern and in a, in a case like that and probably in your nervous system. And sometimes we see, that we see this kind of information and the, that, that habit's ability to act on us is done. It's over. Now, in other cases, it's not completely over. We have to keep seeing it again and again and again. And eventually it goes away. From the Dhammapada, there is no meditation without wisdom. There is no wisdom without meditation. Where there is both meditation and wisdom one gets very close indeed to Nibbana. So what then does wisdom meditate about? Uh, one, true reality. is a very Buddhist language. This is also from a commentary by Kohn's. One, true reality. My interpretation, how things actually are opposed to our perception of them. What else then does wisdom meditate about? Number two, the meaning of life. And this isn't really uh, language that I hear in Buddhist uh, teachings or talks very often, but I like it. The meaning of life. My definition. What is most worth our t- attention and energy? What is most worth our attention and energy? We can understand that as what's required to develop the meditation practice and the fruits that it points toward. And we can understand that as a, as a very personal exploration of how we want to live our life off the mat. What else then does wisdom meditate about? Number three, and the final one, the conduct of life. This is correlated with number two. My definition how to act in response to the meaning of life. How to act in response to the meaning of life. Okay. So, how does wisdom support faith? How does wisdom support faith? What is this, so another question, the same, the, same, uh, the same inquiry said differently. What is this true reality that is spoken of in that prior list? Okay. Well, what, what do we see? We see, the fir- we see the first noble truth, dukkha. Dukkha. Not life is suffering, um, Dukkha Sacha, suffering, truth. The truth that suffering exists. Okay? The truth that suffering exists. Just for a moment, reflect on how much time you've spent trying to get away from suffering on retreat. And don't answer this, but just, you know, just internally. Or, how much time have you noticed thought patterns 
that were self-critical because you were suffer suffering on retreat. Just think about that for a moment. The task is that we start to pay attention to dukkha in all its manifestations. That's the work we're doing. In order to hone our attention on the mechanisms of self and self-making, which are in, in, in geographic proximity very, very, very close to each other. If you can see dukkha, you can see the creation of self. If you can see the creation of self, there's going to be some dukkha nearby. Only a self suffers. Only a self suffers. Bodily sensations and breath don't suffer. Even Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. There's, there's no intrinsic suffering. And thoughts, ultimately, are in and of themselves not dukkha. So we see dukkha. We see the first noble truth. And we see three other things. One, things are coming and going. That's it. All things are coming and going. And we also see that we often fail to integrate this simple truth. We fail to, we fail to act upon it. Two, we see that we have nothing to hold on to. There's an inherent groundlessness, ultimately, to everything. And we also see, despite this, we are incessantly clinging. Right? And number three, the self, the sense, uh, the quality of I or me, man, woman, teacher, doctor, carpenter, unemployed person, whatever it is, the self is seeking a permanent solidity and identity that is wholly, wholly, completely, and finally me. I got it. This is it. And yet, we also see that no version of this whole self satisfies us for very long. Even if it presents as whole, it's temporary, right? This way of thinking about the relationship between faith and present moment awareness highlights how practical mindfulness is and also reveals a relationship between faith and trust that we can bring into formal practice in daily life. A couple ways of understanding this. One, we don't have a faith that things will go the way we want them to go. We don't have a faith that things will go the way we want them to go. But an emerging faith that we can handle skillfully and internally how things do go. There's an inherent trust that things are workable. Not that they will feel pleasant, but that we can be with that which is unpleasant. When this is true, we put less pressure on ourselves to be different than we are, and we less forcibly put less pressure on others 
to be something different. And likewise, less, there's less inclination uh, to want or need or to push conditions to be different than they are. And two, this faith is not prescriptive, but a faith that correlates with trust and allows rather for spontaneity, intuition, risk-taking in the present moment. How could this be so? Why does this work? Simply, A, mindfulness allows us to know what thoughts and feelings are present, period. Two, mindfulness allows us to recognize skillful and unskillful results of thoughts and feelings, period. And three, the recollective aspect of mindfulness remembers which of those actions were wholesome, healthy, skillful, and it repeats them in the future. So while this uh, pragmatic faith is not prescriptive, it is responsive, it is action-oriented. I'll close with a short passage from A Night Train to Lisbon. Gregorius sat before the empty plate in the steaming cup of coffee and had the feeling of never having been so awake in his whole life. And it seemed to him that it wasn't a matter of degree as when you slowly shook off sleep and became more awake until you were fully there. It was different. It was different. A new kind of wakefulness, a new kind of being in the world that, had, that he had never known before. When the Gare de Lyon came into sight, he went back to his seat, and afterward, when he set foot on the platform, it seemed to him as if, for the first time, he was fully aware of getting off a train. Sit for just a moment.